This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 230. And the quote of the day is from Jerry West, who said, You can't get much done if you only work on the days when you feel good. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Hope everybody's doing well, and I hope you're excited about this interview. This is a, a great interview, but before we get into it, uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, if you love the podcast, if you get value out of the podcast, I'll ask that you head over to drummersresource.com forward slash support, and that'll bring you to the Patreon page for the podcast. And what a Patreon account does is it allows you to donate Anywhere from a dollar to an inf- infinite amount of money that you would like to donate per month for the podcast on a recurring basis. Literally, it starts at a dollar. You can do two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars a month, and every little bit helps. So, if you've gotten any value out of any of these podcasts, any of these two hundred and thirty podcasts in the last three years, please head over to drummersresource.com forward slash support. And every little bit helps, and that money will go back into the into the podcast to get more gear, hire more staff, create better content, more video, and things like that. So head over there, drummersresource.com forward slash support, and I will greatly, greatly appreciate it if you do. So let's get into the interview today. This is, again, I, I always... I don't think of these as interviews. I really don't. I, I think of them as conversations, and that's what I've always liked to do. And this this is no different with Kenny Aronoff. And we talk, he tells a bunch of different stories, and we talk about his new book that he just came out with. And in the beginning, he'll tell you more about him. But, I mean, I don't think that anybody out there doesn't know who Kenny is. He's, you know, listed as one of the the greatest drummers of all time on Rolling Stone. I think he's in, like, the top 100 drummers of all time. Um, just a large, large body of work. An amazing player, very well respected, has played with everyone and anyone you can possibly imagine and is the real deal. So this uh, we we tell a lot of a lot of stories about his career, and then we talk about the book. And the book is a really amazing book. It's really interesting. Also, just for you, just so you know, uh, this isn't a hundred percent PG, so it's not something you want to blast at work. It's it's nothing crazy, but there's like some curse words and stuff like that. I figure I should warn you guys because I don't want you blasting this at your job, and and people are like, what the heck is going on? So, like I said, it's not like. XXX rated, but it's definitely not PG. So um, let's get into it with the one and only Kenny Arnoff. Kenny, what's happening, my man? Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, man. It's an honor. Thank you. Uh, first off, uh, thank you for the book that I got in the mail. We're going to talk about the book because there's some interesting stuff in there. And for the audience, I don't think that there's anyone listening to this who doesn't know who you are. Uh, Rolling Stone named you the top, one of the top 100 drummers of all time. You've been on uh, as much as you can count, 300 million records sold. Uh, but let's so give like the quick like if you meet somebody at a cocktail party and they're like, "Hey, man, who are you? What do you do?" 
<laughs> well, I'm a kid that saw the Beatles on uh, the Ed Sullivan show when I was 11, 11 years old. And 50 years later, I was honored to be asked to play with the two remaining Beatles, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, honoring them for that show. And in between the, the 50 years, uh, you know, I've recorded with everybody and toured with, uh, you know, bands like the John Mellencamp Band, Bob Seger, Smashing Pumpkins, Melissa Etheridge, on and off for 10 years, Joe Cocker, on and off for 10 years, John Fogarty, on and off for 22 years, the Bodines, on and off for 26 years. I was with Mellencamp for 17 years, all the records, all the tours, all the uh, videos, all the TV shows. Uh, I recently did Sticks, uh, filled in for... Uh, uh, Todd Zuckerman for Sticks, did a Goo Goo Dolls. I've uh, been on seven Kennedy Center Honors. I've, uh, um, you know, did the Obama inauguration. I've done a lot of TV where I'm the drummer for all the artists, you know, for special events like the Greg Allman tribute, the Johnny Cash tribute, the uh, Dr. John tribute, the John Lennon tribute, things like that. Um, orchestral training background at Indiana University where I got in this uh, Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra and decided after five years of intensive studying and practicing, you know, eight hours a day, I decided I really want to go back to my roots, which is to play rock and roll. Four years later, I got into John Mellencamp band. But all of, and all the records I've recorded, like, you know, everything from, uh, and the people I've played with, I mean, the list is ridiculous. Anything from Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson to B.B. King to Ray Charles to, uh, people like, you know, Tony Ioni from Black Sabbath, Alice Cooper, Smashing Pumpkins, to Elton John, Sting, uh, Paul McCartney, um, Santana, Rod Stewart, Leonard Skinner. Um, uh, and, and then the girls, Michelle Branch, Avril Lavigne, Alanis Morissette. And then, you know, I mean, it just goes it goes on. I can't I can't remember everybody I've played. So did, do you think that like at, from being a kid, like, did you ever think that you would have this career? Not like this. I was, no, I didn't think it would be like this. First of all, I didn't, I, I, I was naive and thought and hoped I would make it, but I didn't have a calculation of how to do that because there was no mentors. There were no teachers. There was, that's why I ended up in classical music. There was nobody to teach rock and roll back then because I'm old enough so that there, it was so new that uh, if you want to take lessons, you took lessons, they taught you how to hold your sticks and play on a practice pad and read music, which I did. But I didn't participate in the marching band or the concert band in high school because why would I want to listen to a bunch of squeaky clarinets and flutes out of tune uh, when I could be when I was playing in clubs when I was thirteen? Right. I mean, I was play, my first band. I was eleven. I'm in clubs at thirteen, you know, and I'm playing Hendrix, Zeppelin, uh, Beatles, uh, James Brown, and that was a lot more fun than playing, you know, marching music. So uh, I, it was kind of an interesting um, way to go. But the thing that the thing that I uh, realized after writing this book, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, was I had to ask myself the question, of, like, how did I do this? Because I do not focus on what I've done. I only focus on what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. What I've done is done. I just don't. It's like I don't listen to the records I played on unless I have to. And I don't get off on that that much because I always think I can can do better. As a matter of fact, I have a saying that I'll never be as great as I want to be. Uh, but I'm willing to spend the rest of my life trying to be as great as I can be. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's like the human condition. I mean, you, we're not perfect. I mean, it's. Like I mean, a, do you suffer from the same thing that everybody else does? Like, do you hear every record that you played on and think it's shit? Not or, shit, but it could be better. 
is always something that could be better. Yeah. Rarely am I blown away <laughs> by my playing. It's more like a hockey goalie where, you know, if you get zero scored against you, you won. You don't score points. You're just trying to prevent from getting scored against. <laughs> right. you know? But I mean, I mean, I, it's any great athlete is very humble too. You see them interviewed after a game and they'll kind of, you know, they're very methodical and they're very like, well, you know, uh, grateful for what I did, but we could have done better. We need to right. get this, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's honesty. It's a self-awareness of where you're at. You have to, you have to learn how to praise yourself when you do good, but it's all about being honest. You, you can say, I, I did do a great job. Um, fine. Um, uh, or say, you know, I could do this better and not get so bummed out that you, uh, start to freeze up or fail the next time you play. Right. It's basically you become the coach and the player inside your body or the mm -hmm. father and the son. You have to get that relationship going. You know what I mean? So you're looking at it like, I, you know what? I gave 100%. It's a great, it's a great record, but I want to do better next time. Yeah, I look yeah. at exactly. I look at it like, you know, um, I should have played more laid back or I should have not done that, Phil, whatever it is, you know, I'll, I'll sit there and go, yeah, there are things I could have done better, but obviously they liked what I did. And rarely am I, am I like horribly embarrassed. I have to consider right. also what point I was at my career, you know, mm -hmm. there's songs on the, I mean, whenever the red light comes on and somebody mentioned this to me the other day, they said the thing that, that blows them away about me is that whether it's a $200 gig for, you know, 150 people at the Viper Room, or if I'm playing in a, a stadium, I, I give it all, like, everything I got, no matter what it is. And I said, yeah, the reason why is because uh, every time I play, it's like I play, I'm exposed. I'm being seen by somebody. Mm -hmm. And also, I want to feel good about myself as a person. Mm -hmm. And that's how I approached that book, actually. I mean, you know, people ask me, why did you, you know, reveal so much honesty in it. And I said, you know, to really be special and really be unique and be like nobody else, your biggest calling card you got is to be yourself, is to be, there's nobody like you. Mm -hmm. There's nobody that looks like you, nobody has your personality. And I have a twin brother and we're different. But right. the thing is, is that that is what makes, separates us. So I felt that I wanted to share the real shit with the people without name dropping and without going to too much detail. So I, I didn't, you know, it just so it wouldn't be embarrassing or, or weird. I, I, but I broached on a lot of stuff that would make people realize um, that I'm human and that it this didn't come easy. This was uh, there were many situations. I mean, there's three chapters that say fired, fired again, fired again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I was reading I through those today. <laughs> Um, but I did. I want well, people to know, man, that it's it's not just because you win American Idol doesn't mean you're a rock star or have a career. In most cases, you don't because you haven't put in enough time to be great at anything. You have to put in lots and lots and lots of hours. Mm -hmm. There are no shortcuts. If you're waiting for the big break and you haven't put in the work, you will fail miserably. Even if you get the break, because there will be people that you're working with or that are in your environment that have put in the time and they will smoke your ass every time. Mm -hmm. You can't stand up. You won't even recognize a problem when it occurs. And I'm hired not just because I'm a great drummer, it's because I'm a problem solver. 
I know people. I know every situation there is, or a lot, not every, but I know a lot about TV, recording for movies, recording for bands or artists, uh, doing uh, shows, uh, you know, the Kennedy Center Honors. Or, I mean, there's so much information I've gathered. That's what makes me a valuable person, not just how I play. Right. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned uh, you had mentioned humility and how 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 uh, humble would you rate yourself like one to ten? Do you think you're humble or? Wow. Nobody has ever asked me that question. That's cool. All right. Okay. So I have there's a, lot- a and there's a reason why I'm asking this, but I want to hear your answer before you okay. before I ask the second oh, part of the question. Well, to myself, I'm very, very humble, very honest. Um, I, if anything, I have to, you know, I've had to work at not being too hard on myself. I'm very, very hard, on my, very hard on myself and very disciplined. And, um, uh, so as far as humble, what's the top 10 or the one? I would say 10 would be, uh, 10 would be humble and one would be arrogant. Okay. I'm definitely in the eight to 10 zone with myself. Mm. And as, but with that, I also am extremely confident. And when I believe in something, I'm not afraid to say it with enthusiasm. So some people might take that as, you know, I'm full of my, myself or, you know, uh, that I'm not humble, but I, I'm very humble to my, to myself and, and to other people. But if I believe in something, I'm, I express that. Mm-hmm. At the same time. So those are two different things. And that's the reason why I asked that was because I think or I know that if you're going to have a career, whether whatever, if, if you're if you're a musician or if you're you want to have a successful career doing anything else, there has to be some level of confidence and you don't have to be this egomaniac or like this arrogant guy that's going to go out there and just like and just go through everything with brute force. But you can have this confidence of saying like when you walk in the room, people know you're in the room. But yeah. it's not because you're arrogant. It's because of the confidence and the the strong, yeah, the strong, uh, the you know the the presence that you have. Because yeah, you know you're coming in. and You're like, I'm going to do the job. I'm going to do it right, and that's what you're paying me for. Oh, absolutely. You know, and a lot is with body language. You can't if you're an actor and you're trying to create that. It's not as genuine or as powerful as the real thing. And the real thing comes from a massive amount of experience. Mm-hmm. So anybody who's looking for the quick quick break or if anybody's entitled and lazy and expects they're going to make it they aren't they There's, are not they're not going to be able to compete with the people that work hard they can't you can't they can't do it man I, it's like zero equals zero it's basic math mm-hmm. zero equals zero you do nothing you get nothing or there you are don't. so many people who have or who even have natural talent that work so hard because they have to because your talent's only going to get you so far and then you got to develop how and how how talented were you as a kid or was it just like just sheer development of skill of, of just practicing and practicing and practicing? I say it's more development of skill. Yeah, I was ten, what, my I say my biggest gift is my energy and my spirit and this vibe that I don't know where that comes from. But that 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 what transcends through my playing. I mean, why? would I mean, I mean. I'm playing a lot of simple parts. I mean, I actually became the drummer I made fun of when I was in college or even after college when I thought less is more was, you know, was, was bullshit, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I didn't respect Ringo Starr, Charlie Watts, 
um, as much as I respected Billy Cobham or Tony Williams or Steve Gadd or anybody with technique. And then I, I had to learn how to play simple when I got in the Mellencamp band to the event of being fired off the first record because I didn't have, I didn't know what my purpose was as a drummer. And my purpose was to get John's song on the radio and be number one. Nobody told me that. Mm-hmm. Nobody has ever told me that until a couple of years ago. I realized that's the ultimate purpose if you're making records. You're trying to get the person's record to be on the radio, be number one. So whatever you say, whatever you do, whatever drum beat, whatever anything, whatever anything you do, anything, you have to be thinking in terms of that's the goal. And and you have to be a team player and serve the team. And that comes comes from humility and humbleness. Look, people hire me. There are kids that hire me to play on their records. And, you know, a 20-year-old girl comes into my studio and wants to play on a record. And I've got a hundred... 1,300 gold, platinum, uh, diamond records. And I'm sitting there. I could tell her, well, you know, I'd pick Baba. I, I don't talk like that. I, I'm working for her. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm still working. There was, a, there was a, a, a session where I was playing for a 10, 12-year-old kid, chubby little kid. His parents had money. They, they it, was, it was his dream to make a record. So I'm in there. And at one point, the kid, I hear him talk whispering to the producer the producer looks at me and i come over around i said hey man is there anything i could do to help me he says well he kind of wants you to play more like scary because he's into horror films and i so then i started talking to the kids said well what are your favorite films i mean i mean i kind of i want to make sure i play the right type of scary for you at any rate we got a relationship going so he felt comfortable talking to me at the end of the session the producer came up to me and says dude i i knew you were great I mean, everybody knows you play drums great, but what blew me away was your skill at going up to this kid and making him feel like he was the artist and that you were trying to make his record sound great. And I I looked at him, I said, well, that's the best compliment you can give me because that is the shit right there. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't trying to prove anything to anybody. I was just sincerely, from my heart, trying to help this kid out. Well, and I, I would Im- I would imagine that at, there's a point in your career that people stop hiring you because you're a good drummer and start hiring you because you're Kenny Arnoff. Does that make sense? Not in and not in a negative way, but they know they're like there's a thousand great drummers out there. There's a million great drummers yeah, out there. Yeah. So you you earn your reputation as a good drummer, but after a while, it's like, yeah, there's other drummers out there who are better or worse than than Kenny, but we're going to get him because that's the guy that we, we want him because of all these other ancillary things that go along with him. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not in the meetings, but I would think that... I mean, I'm almost 100% sure. I mean, when you get called to do like the Kennedy Center honors, okay, I'm considered a rock star, but I can read and write music like a mofo. Mm -hmm. And trust me, when you go in and you get suddenly, you got to do, the first one I did was The Who and George Jones, all in one event, one one Kennedy Center. I I didn't get the, the final tunes didn't even get to me until a week before and the arrangements were very unique so i write everything out every note keith moon did everything on those george on the uh, george jones records and then we get there and as soon as i the day we set we get there i get an early hour early the day let's see you fly in on wednesday thursday morning i'm in there or maybe flying thursday friday morning i'm in there 
get my drums tweaked out, and then the, the MD comes in, and he hands us charts. These charts don't have any of the stuff I have on it. They've got some <laughs> basic outlines. So I'm scrambling very quickly to adapt the letters and numbers from the, the those charts to my charts, and they're changing parts and doing all these changes. This is before the artist comes in. Then the, when the artists do come in, they change it again. I go back to my hotel that night. We write every chart again. Then we come in the next day. We do a camera block, more edits, rewrite the charts again. All right, there's all that technical stuff. The other part is I listen, I learn, I lead as a drummer, but I'm not the boss. And I understand no matter how big a rock star I am, I am a servant to the MD and the artist and the production, <clears throat> the production of the show. And that's, and also I have a great attitude. And when these, when the, the producer of the show sees that when artists come in, they know me, they like me, they get along with me. That's big. That's, mm -hmm. a, this is what you're talking about. That's why I get hired. And when I was doing the inauguration and Beyonce were rehearsing at nine 30 in the morning and she was not digging, uh, I was playing laid back to her vocal track. I was, well, she was singing and she it was in the morning. So she was kind of tired. So I played, I wanted to accommodate where she was feeling it. She didn't want me to do that. She wanted me to play um, more in the center of the beat or on top. She didn't say it that way, but I figured out, okay, usually the track she's recording are with click tracks. So I told the band, I'm going to go on a click. So I played very steady and let her play laid back and move around my click. And, and, the bottom line is, for one second, all eyes were on me. Producer, two associate producers, uh, uh, Springsteen might have been in there. Uh, all these people were in there watching this whole scene go down. And at one moment, I had to save my, 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 my position. I mm -hmm. had to show that I had an answer, that I could solve the problem, and then execute solving that problem. Right now, they look at me as like, "Oh man, we gotta have Kenny because he's not just a drummer. He's a he solves problems. When things get tight, he knows how to talk to people, he knows how to work with people, he knows how to get along, and he can read, and he can write, and he can play every style of music. And that's a valuable guy. Mm -hmm. Now, and a lot of that, a lot of that comes from doing. Like you've been doing this for so long that yeah. after the you know years and years of doing this, you become you become an expert at it. Yeah. How do you how does how do you suggest people prepare for that? How do you suggest people are start to go down that road as at, at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old of starting to be a problem solver, starting to to learn how to play what's right for the song, how to, you know, how to how to work correctly in the studio or on tour with an MD? Well, there's no shortcuts, man. You got to have to put you just got to be put in the time. Try to make every gig no matter what gig it is just like that guy said about me no matter what gig it is be extremely professional um do everything as if it's as if you're playing with your your favorite band favorite artist mm -hmm. treat it like that that means be on time be prepared don't ever say oh that's all right it's never all right always be prepared be over prepared mm -hmm. you can't be prepared enough i'm working right now i'm trying to, i i 
actually hired Sammy Hagar to play with my trio to be at this private party. When I, when I mean private party, we're talking, we got a jet, uh, we got a, a, I brought in a crew, sound man, stage manager, guitar. I mean, this, this is big money. Right. But the point is I'm learning cause Sammy's on the bill. I suggested cause the guy's going to be 55. I said, wow, nice. that'd be great. Get Sammy Hagar. Cause he can sing. I can't drive 55. And he said, wow, can you get Sammy? I said, well, if you give him the right kind of money and, uh, and, uh, you, and he likes to fly in his private jet, I'm sure you can get him. Right. So I texted Sam and I said, how does private jet getting paid this amount of money December 10th uh, sound to you? He went, call me. I made it happen. So I'm learning Van Halen songs, Ronnie Montrose. I'm learning Chicken Foot. Well, Chicken Foot, I already know. And I'm drilling myself over and over and over. You know, I got the most crazy schedule. It would give people a fucking heart attack. Man, but I see your posts, and I'm like, man. Oh, like that's that's nothing. That's the tip of the iceberg. It's nothing. I'm juggling four careers, and I my head is spinning, and I'm behind. But I'm gonna go and and uh, I rehearse these songs over and over and over again. Now I could read them. As a matter of fact, I prefer to read them because it's easier. But I'm trying to memorize this stuff. And it's like, you know, when you've got eight hours of other business to do during the day and then practice three, four hours a day and then try to work out and try to be healthy and right. try to manage every aspect of your career. And, but do you and, manage it all yourself or do you have like, do you have a manager? I have an, account, or I have an accountant and business manager who, who pays my bills and takes care of all that crap. But uh, it seems like everything, you know, like with this book and, all these other things, I noticed that mo if I want it done right, it's got to go through me because I've got the vision. Or and I hire. I'm going to do a photo shoot uh, for uh, I won't say for what, but it's a photo shoot. And you know they they said we got it all set up. And I said who's the photographer? And they mentioned it. I said no, I don't want to go with that photographer. And it's not be having an attitude. Here's the reason. I'm finally at the point now where I know what it takes to get the results. In other words, this is being prepared. This is working hard. I said I want a photographer that understands me that when I then try to be creative and say, listen, I want to go with a different type of shadow and I want this vision. I want that. This is going to be a six-foot poster that's going to go to 30,000 stores. Uh, it's got to be right. It cannot be just some picture that someone took with their iPhone because right. that that's that's where I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm at, and I so even those little things like that become really important with regard to preparation and hard work and doing it the best you can, and still have a great attitude about it. Mm -hmm. You make your demands, but you come in with with not this cocky rock star attitude. You explain it to somebody. I explained to the guy. He totally got it. He said, absolutely. I said, if you're going to spend all the money to have a photo sh shoot and have this thing out there with your product in there, I want to look like the product. And the product I discussed with him, I wanted to look like me. Right. I said, you got to match those two things. Okay. I'm talking about a couple of things here. One is, you know, where I'm at in my career, but – the big thing is it's still preparation and it still goes through me. So I recommend to everybody to not just sit there when somebody says, I'll give you an example. Somebody told me to get into the Aspen School of Music when I was 19 years old. Just learn, do, perform out of four different categories, timpani, snare drum, mallets, and multiple percussion. Pick three for the audition and do it. I did all four. <laughs> I did more. 
because right. I felt I needed that edge. So I wasn't as good as a lot of people. Okay, the day I leave school, I'm going to go home. I didn't hear from Aspen. I'm driving uh, two miles out of town. I think this is in my book. I go back to pick up my mail because I forgot my mail. I got accepted to Aspen. Worst, worst percussionist in that entire summer camp. Worst. I got my ass kicked, humiliated, tears, crying. It was a rough summer. But the teacher there at Indiana University taught at Aspen, number one classical school, school in the United States of America back then. Very, very competitive, very, very tough. I never thought I'd ever get into that school. I demand an audition. He says, no, come back in January. I said, yes, now. <laughs> Once again, I made it happen. I didn't sit there and go, oh, okay. I said, no, I want to come now. Right. In other words, he said, no. And I said, I got to make this work. I've, there's got to be a way. And I convinced him to, to audition. I got in Indi into Indiana University and I went right from Aspen to Indiana University and studied there for four years. Tanglewood, I auditioned the number one student orchestra in the United States of America. Everybody in there can, ends up in professional orchestras if they want to. First year, completely flubbed my audition for Vic Firth. Second year, I come back, failed again. Most people are going, you really, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. I went back again, third year, didn't get it. Uh. I went back a fourth year and got in. It's dedication. Reason why, reason why is because I wanted it bad and I kept practicing and preparing to do better. It didn't just come to me. Mm -hmm. I had to work for it. John Mellencamp, first record, I'm, I'm in the band. I make it after four years of practicing and working and I get my break, I get in the band they're on MTV, they're making records, they're touring, opening for Kiss and all kinds of bands. And unbelievable, I did it. I made it. I made it into my Beatles. Good in the studio, and in two days I was fired. <laughs> yeah. John brings me down to the, his room, or we go to somebody's room at the Chateau Marmont in Hollywood. And he says, Kenny, you know, I think, um, you know, you haven't had enough experience playing on hit records and radio. And I'm going, no, no, no. No, 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 I'm not going home. And he said, uh, he didn't know what to say. And I said, well, you know, just scrambling, like, listen, I'm not going home. I said, am I still the drummer in your band? He's going like, uh, yeah. Uh, he didn't know what I was getting at. He thought, what's he asking me that for? Right. And I said, uh, and I, I mean, I didn't know why. I was just fighting for my life. And I said, well, I'm fumbling. I'm going, well, you know, I'll, I'm going to go in the studio and I'm going to watch these drummers play my parts that I came up with. And I'm going to watch them do it. And I'm going to learn from them. Yeah, I'm going to learn from them and benefit from that. And you're going to benefit from that because I'm your drummer. If I get better, it's good for you, right? Right. And you don't have to pay me. I'll sleep on the floor. Well, he didn't pay me. And I slept on a bed. And man... I did learn a lot. I did. It was humbling. It was embarrassing. I was the odd man out. Mm -hmm. I was the new guy. I just played with Leonard Bernstein, Cesar Zauer, Aaron Copeland, won a concerto competition, got in the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. You didn't think I didn't deserve to be on that record? Well, John was right. I didn't know how to play drums enough or at the level they needed to be on a number one hit single on the radio. So he was saying you were good enough to play live, but not good enough to play in the studio. Exactly. And he yes. was right. And I was wrong. And I thought he was wrong, but he was right. I didn't have, I had not put in the time to be great at that particular style of drumming. 
So what if I could play Billy Cobb and Phil's? Every style is difficult if you perfect it. Anything in life is difficult if you perfect it. And then when I speak about this in my speaking engagements called RPS, repetition of anything is the preparation for success. That's why mm -hmm. a golfer, I know a golfer practices six hours a day, seven days a week, because the repetition of swinging that club, putts, chip shots, and drives mm -hmm. is the only way he's going to win PGA tournaments, and he does. He won seven out of... 10 months, he won seven PGA tournaments, practicing six hours a day, seven days a week. So right. the lazy and entitled kid who doesn't want to do that because he thinks he should get it will get his ass bitch smoked out of the fucking game. Yep. There's Sorry, folks. Lazy people are going east. The hard workers are going west. You're going farther and farther apart every day. There's a, uh, there's a movie on Showtime called Kobe Bryant's Muse. And I've brought it up before. I'm not really a basketball guy, but I watched this video and it amazed me how much Kobe Bryant still practiced and worked. Like, yeah, he would get done the game and yeah. he would go and he would shoot free throws for another three hours. And there's one story that they he calls his trainer at like two o'clock in the morning and he's like, hey, man, let's go. Like, we got to go work out. So they go to the they go to the spot and around four thirty five o'clock, the trainer's like, all right, we're you know, we're going home. And he and they have practice in the morning at like nine a.m. So he's like, we're only going to get a couple hours of sleep. And then, you know, we got to be at team practice at nine. So the trainer gets there. Kobe's there at nine. And he's like, what time did you get out of here last night? And Kobe's like, I never left. I love it. That's he's my hero. See, it's the same thing in every career. You know, mm -hmm. Now, I have to say one thing that I don't talk about in my book or talk about when I speak, and that is there is a factor there that is, a lot of people have no – well, nobody has control over, and that is the DNA. Right. We're born with a DNA. And mm -hmm. that um, – you know, but here's what I tell people. Be the best that you can be at who you are, and then you are successful. Then you are, you've won the, the trophy. We can always be better. You can be a better housewife. You can be a better teacher. You can be a better lawnmower. You can be a better rock star. You can be a better athlete. You can be a better business person. It's all about taking advantage of this incredible gift we have living in the United States of America and, and living at a, at, a, at a very unique time. Make the most of it. Mm -hmm. If you, every, you know, I'm not saying, you know, at, at the end of the day, man, if I want a couple of glasses of wine to chill out after working 16, 18 hours a day, I'm taking it because right. I, I, it actually helps me. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, if it's not going to help me, I'll be the first to say, stop. Right. You got to manage yourself. That's why you ask, yeah, people work for me, but ultimately I work for me, right. you know, and because I need to understand who I am to make the right decisions on who to work for me. Right. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. There, there's one concept that, that this sort of reminded me of about, about you know, Kobe Bryant working hard and, and working hard uh, for no matter what industry you're in. And what I've noticed is that the more people get successful, the more they work and or the harder they work. And yeah. there, I think there's always the misconception that people say, well, I'll develop all of those good habits one, once I reach 
that success. So like, oh yeah, if I was Kenny, I'd be practicing six hours a day too. And it's like, no, that's how you get to become Kenny. Like oh my if God, they got it all wrong. You know what I mean? Well, you like work your ass, you work your ass to get where you want to go. And then you work your ass to stay where you are. Right. And right. I work my ass to go to the next level. Mm-hmm. How do you stay relevant in the music business, which is one of the most difficult businesses in the world, a very broken business right now, never mm-hmm. be the same as it was. It, how do you stay relevant? There is ways. There are ways. I'm doing it. The right. thing is, is that, it, but if you suddenly decide at age 50, I'm going to start being disciplined now. Well, I mean, it's all good that you do that and you'll, your life will get better. But you missed the boat as far as you should have been doing that when you were 20 or 18 or 15 even. Right. You know, I mean, listen, I I have, you know, I wasn't practicing drum set eight hours a day for the five years I was studying uh, classical music. And I was playing drum set almost every day, playing in bands and the big bands and rock bands and country bands and fusion bands. I wasn't practicing. And I, I do I have regrets? I wish I had spent all my time practicing drum set. I didn't go to Berkeley. There was no, the, the programs weren't developed like they are now. So I did classical and I thought, well, at least you get in an orchestra and you're playing music and uh, you'll get a, a, you'll get an income, you'll teach, you know, the whole thing made sense. Do I have regrets? Well, I do and I don't. I don't have a regret because look where I am. It's, right. it's been incredible. I wish I had, I wish I had, sometimes I wish I had had the time and had majored in playing drum set and gone to a school where they had great, like Berkeley, we had Gary Chafee or somebody and learned how to play like that. On the other hand, maybe I would have ended up being the drummer and the musician I am right now. This session is brought to you by my good friends at DW Drums, and there is some exciting stuff that's going to be happening in 2017 with Drummers Resource and DW and all of their brands, Gretsch, LP, and all of that. But in the meantime, check them out. See what they have going on. They're a great group of people. They make... I don't think I need to tell you, but they make amazing products. They support drumming initiatives all over the world, and they are just some great, great people up there in Oxnard, California. And I suggest if you're in the LA area, if you're going to NAM or anything like that, stay an extra day or two and take the time to go up to the to the DW factory in Oxnard. It's about 45 minutes north of LA. It's a great place to be. Check them out, dwdrums.com. Also, Evans wants to let you know that you should never let a circle box you in. And the new level 360 head is a new head that'll give you precise tuning and accurate articulation every single time. And you can learn more about the Evans 360 heads at evansdrumheads.com. And hey, please do not forget about my friends over at Drums Etc. They are located in Lancaster, PA, but you can shop online at their store. And a little bit about these guys, they're a family-owned business, and they've been around since 1985. And you don't stick around that long without being an amazing drum shop. So you can go to Drums Etc. or drumsetc.com to order anything that you think you need for the drums. Plus, you can call them, 1-800-922-DRUM. And the person who picks up the phone is the person who packs your order. They can walk you through every step of the ordering process. Not only that, they're extremely knowledgeable. They're really great people. And I like I actually went to school with the owner's daughter. I mean, they're great family business, but above everything for you guys, an amazing drum shop that I want you to seriously consider checking out. They're drumsetc.com or give them a call, 1-800-922-DRUM. 
Now let's get back into it with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Kenny Arnold. Do you think that you could have the career that you have now, but do you think you could do it now? Like starting now, not at your age, I'm saying like if you were, you know, 20 now, um, how would you do it differently? Because it's not the same. Like the touring money's not there. The the recording money's not there. Yeah. Um, okay. Ah, the music business today. Well, you the, the money that I made in the sessions and recording and even touring from what the knowledge I have is diminished immensely, mm-hmm. immensely. So, you know, I'm, I'm living in a big, you know, expensive house in, in, uh, you know, the hills of studio city. And after still surviving two divorces and getting scammed, which I talk about in my book. And we're going to talk about that. Cause that's cr- Yeah. And, that's crazy. Um, you know, um, the thing is, um, and, you know, moving at the tempo I did, thing, you know, there is a price to pay for all of it. But the thing is, what I tell people now is music is so valuable and what you learn from playing music and, you know, studying and working hard, the discipline, the hard work, the communication skills, you know, um, creating a plan and executing that plan. This is where I want to be in four years, doing things like that. You learn doesn't matter where you learn that from, but if you're doing something that you love, which is music, you'll learn it faster and you'll be willing to work harder and you're willing, willing to be disciplined. Mm-hmm. And so does the value is there. If you're looking to make millions in this music business, very, very difficult. It's not the way it used to be. You can't do it as a drummer anymore unless you happen to get into a band that is going to hit the jackpot and you're going to be a member of that band where you share royalties. But I mean, listen, I played on three. I mean, you made you made millions in the in the music industry, but that's a different time, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I made that, or I had that. Um, <laughs> I don't like to exp- express. Yeah, I made millions over over the. Yeah, I mean, I was shit. If you add it all up, yeah, I didn't make a million a year. That's for sure. Nothing. Right. Like right. That. Right. I, but if you add it all up, I made millions. Absolutely. And, you know, I never was a royalty sharing member of, of the Malachite band. I was just a, a member, I, not mm-hmm. a member. I was just a uh, employee. A hired gun, right. Yeah, hired gun, even though the, the image was I was in the band. I've been paid big money for tours, but those days are over. And um, have you ever like what, have you ever gotten like the call where, where they tell you how much they're going to pay you? And you're like, holy shit, that's how much they're going to pay me to go on tour. Hell yeah, I'm going. Uh, no, no, it never went down like that. It usually <laughs> was like uh, I, the the first of my biggest paying tours. I just said uh, either I suggested the pay, or they. I may have suggested. I think I did it with Bob Seger. This is what I need per, uh, or maybe it was they said this is what we'll pay you, and it was the most I'd ever made per week. But we only did like when I added it up, it was a certain amount per show. Mm-hmm. So I used that as my benchmark for the Melissa Etheridge tour, Smashing Pumpkins tour, and John Fogarty tour. And so what I liked about being paid by the day, I got paid a lot of money per show. And my 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 brain was thinking, okay, they'll pay me when they make money. And on days off, they don't have to pay me. The other advantage was on my days off, they're mine. I own them. Yep. So I'd go off and do sessions all over the country. Mm-hmm. And that worked great for me. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so um, that's why when people suggest to me, well, we're going to pay you half day rate when you fly. I'm like, 
Kenny Aronoff works seven days a week. So if I'm flying, I can't be doing a session. Right. I said, if I don't get any work, I'll go for that. But if I get work, you're paying me what I'm missing. Mm-hmm. And that's usually the case. I'm working every day. Yeah, that's that's the way to do it. There's it's it's and the reason why we, you know I sort of went down the money road a little bit is because there's some there's some taboo like if this was a business podcast right you could like everybody openly talks about money but there's something about the music business and the money side of it and they're sort of like like people not necessarily want to talk about it and divulge it because it's personal income versus you know like how much a company made but. Yeah. But it's almost like you're bad if you make money or you are trying to make more money for your thing. And it's like, this is my career. This is my job. I know. It's like, it's like the band that was really cool until uh, they made it big and then everyone hates them. I'm like, what the, f- what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, that's that? what they were trying to do. What the fuck is that? Oh, yeah. You go fucking then play in dirty, sweaty clubs your whole life until you're fucking 90 just to entertain some people and not make any money. Yeah, that happened. I mean, I remember like Green Day, like, okay, I'm not going to go on stadiums and play and make tons of money just so I can be cool. Yeah. What what are they thinking? People are so stupid sometimes. That happened to the guys with Green Day. Like they couldn't even go back to their town. I know. I heard that the Muse made it big in England. Everyone was like, oh, man, they sold out. Oh, really? How'd they sell out? Yeah, they're trying. They're doing what they've been trying. That's what they want to do. Well, how about this? You guys like Muse. Why can't anybody else? <laughs> That's what I don't understand. Why can't anybody else? You mean, wouldn't you think that other people would like the same band? Right. You like? Uh, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me either. All right. Let's talk about this book. Right. I got I got it in my hand. This book is, let's see. So the title Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Sex, Drums. Sex, Drums, and Rock and Roll. I don't know why I said drugs. You know what? That, that, but that's the phrase. The, the yeah. phrase is Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, which is, to me, a phrase of celebration of let's go party, let's have fun, let's right. go out. It's not to be taken literal, although in my business, it was taken very literal. Right. But, but it's not necessary. It's more like, I like the title. I love the title. I like and it, too. It's exciting. It's dynamic. My life has been sex, drums, rock and roll. You know, it's been fun. It's been wild. And people ask me, did you do drugs? Very little. Because my career was always more important than, than partying. Right. I partied. I would had hangovers. We have a couple of hangovers and try to play in front of 20,000 people. And you, you're, you're, you're famous and you're, your job is online. You'll, you'll cut that off real quick. Yeah. And the, the, I think the one thing to keep that people need to keep in mind, too, is like, you know, Mellencamp can go out and be drunk and fall all over the stage and he doesn't lose his job. You do that, you lose your job. Absolutely. You know? you know, I mean, when we were young, in our late t- 20s, and the audience was young, and girls were throwing T-shirts at us, and their underwear, and flashing us, and we were all young. We were all pretty wild, sex-driven, hormones flying on men and women, so sure stuff went on. And, you know, we partied, and we did some stuff, but it wasn't a lifestyle of, like, this is what I live for and wake up to do. Right. What I lived for was my career. And that is why that book even exists. Mm-hmm. 23 pages of discography in small print is not easy to come up with. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about like, you know, all the stories that you hear of like Zeppelin and all the crazy shit that happened on their jet and all that stuff. And it's like, yeah. and now it's like, it's so funny that, you know, people want to get backstage and, and, and like you get back there and you're like, you know what's going on backstage? Nothing. Nothing. I know. <laughs> like people are eating. It's like catering and like. You know, somebody walking around in their bathroom. 
I mean, we had wild, I mean, we had some wild times, but it was it was always. I'm saying then versus now are totally. Yeah, yeah. Oh know. God, there's nothing in the tours I'm on. Shit, you could bring Grandma backstage. Right. Right. Um. So um. So this the thing that I think that's fascinating about this book is it's it's it reads less like less like a biography and more like Polaroids into your life. Mm, cool. It's, it's like, it's like a snapshot. And like, as you're reading it, I, I'm, I immediately feel like I'm inside of the story and I'm like, I'm there. I feel like I'm there. And it's not like, and then I went to this thing and then it's cool. It's just like, Hey, here's a snapshot from 1989. This thing happened. And then here's 96. This thing happened. And it, so it's like, it's it's like you could take out every single chapter and they could sort of live on their own as their own individual like short story, which I think is really cool. Cool, man. Yeah, I I I I, I read the book again. You know, I've read it many many times, getting it ready. But when I read it in its hardcover form, I felt the same way. You could put it down and then, oh, next chapter is Chicken Foot. Oh, next yeah, chapter yeah. Smashing Pumpkins. How cool is that? I thought the titles were – and it was my editor that created the titles. I thought it was a cool, cool yeah, way. Yeah, because it's not like – because, you know, it's like, hey, I want to be a Beatle, uh, Purple Haze, Ground Zero, Rock in the U.S., yeah. R-O-C-K in the U.S.A., Americana, like – you know, the new pop, a little piece of my heart, chicken foot, professor Arnoff, Melissa, like there's all sorts of, of different stories. Um, the one, so this, the story about you sh- coming back to the studio late, was that the second time you got fired or the first time? No, that was the first time. Okay. Um, what yeah, you do? That, you went out and got drunk with the producer? Yeah. I went out with Steve Cropper and we were drinking and just eating dinner and the band went back and I went with him to, he wanted to show me some, uh, antiques he had bought and and then we got back to the the i'd only been the band for five weeks with mellencamp and i got back and i was late and as you saw in the book john is like livid he's like a rabid dog he's sweat rings under his arms his head is down but his eyes are looking up at me and his arms are all muscular like popeye and he's sitting and he's looking at me he says aronoff you're fucking fired <laughs> fuck you for coming back late and steve Cropper tried to interject and say john it's not his fault he says shut the fuck up he says he works for me not you right he works for me and i went oh my god he's absolutely right yeah, it's absolutely right. And Is that I, like that was the wake up call. That was a wake up call. Yeah, there's another story in here talking about you didn't want to get drafted, so you uh, you ate a bunch of shit that you were allergic to, so that you would go into the <laughs> into the to the draft station, so it looked like you were in really bad shape. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Vietnam. That was the last year of the draft, and and you know. Um, my birthday's March 7th, and so Nixon pulled out of the hat or the, the, the dish or the bowl. He pulled out – he pulled the numbers out. He pulled out March 6th, and me and my twin brothers, mouths dropped. We were at different colleges, and we're like, holy shit, that's so close. Next number we pulled out, March 7th, our mm. birthday. We figured it wouldn't be anywhere close. Right, right. We were draft number two, so – yeah, pretty much. I was going to Vietnam when everybody was getting killed, and they were. It was ending, and it was not a good place to go. So my mom was screaming at my dad about we're moving to Canada. So we called up doctors. I had allergies, a history of allergies, getting shots and stuff. So we basically drew up papers that made it sound like, um, you know, I'll sneeze in the Viet Cong, will know where we are, and, and they'll shoot everybody. <laughs> <laughs> My brother had uh, surgery on his knee from sports, 
we just took the truth and just really pushed it hard. Magnified it, right. So when I was going, since my thing was allergies, it was a perfect time of year. It was in the fall and a lot of ragweed in Indiana. I, I wanted to make sure that my nose was stuffed and com- and dripping. And so I was eating everything I was allergic to. And, you know, I got on the bus and all these farm boys from Indiana just thought it was no problem to go to Vietnam and kill a bunch of commies. Uh, I got there and, you know, I got out. But the thing is, is that they, they gave me a lot of shit. They screamed and yelled at me and, and tried to intimidate me and say, we're on these. I, I came with paper, paper, like, oh, 15 pages. They had the, had it advanced. I was the first guy in like 8.30 in the morning, they're like, you know, because my last name's A, so I'm the first guy in. And the guy says, we're here, son. Does it say you can don't have to be in the Army? And I went, um, 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 now I'm frozen. I'm going, holy shit, I'm going to the Army. I'm going to Vietnam. Fuck, how'd this happen? And he says, what, what's wrong with you? And I couldn't remember. I was, <laughs> I, was oh all, I was all choked up. And then finally he says, what the fuck does this say? You can't pay. I'm like, shit, uh, right there. Allergy says, and eventually he said, listen, you got enough shit to get this whole fucking building out of the army. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> That's what he did. I fucking was freaking. And, and as I was leaving, a guy in a lab coat took me away. He said, ah, oh, man, don't don't worry about him. He's just pissed off. He has to stamp every page about 100 times or whatever it was, 50 times. Right. So it's just and I went, shit. But it didn't end there, man. As you read on the book, I go out, I got a case of beer immediately. I'm going to celebrate. And I'm hitchhiking back to Bloomington, Indiana. And about a 350-pound redneck biker guy picks me up with his seat. was like almost in the back seat. He was so big. And he's sitting there going, big gut, you know, smelled of a lot of cologne. And he goes, well, what are, you, what are you doing all that beer? And I went, uh, oh, uh, I'm going to go visit my girlfriend in Bloomington. We're going to party. I didn't want to tell the guy I just gotten out of the army because that guy might have had a brother or maybe he did. Yeah. He was going to yeah. shit out of me for being, like, you know. Like a draft dodger. Yeah. yeah. So I said, man, I'm going to party. He said, well, man, that's, have a good time. And he brought me all the way to Bloomington, and I walked to my dorm with a case of beer. Nice. <laughs> it's a different time, man. Yeah, different time. So the the one uh, this is this is crazy that you were even a part of this this whole the uh, the scam uh, like the, the Bruno scam, and I I watched a documentary about this uh, maybe I don't know maybe like three or four weeks ago. What they have a documentary on it? Yeah, yeah. You gotta send me that. Don't I will send me an email. Um and so like. All, they the the Bruno family scammed all these people, including you were part of it. But like at the New York Mets, like it's yeah. it's so tell the well, tell they the, didn't do the New York Mets. But it, what I was trying to say in the book, these guys were like they were like hillbilly version of Bernie Madoff. Right, I mean, right, right. They were they did it for thirty years as a family. and for people just just for just for clarity's sake, Bernie Madoff had like a Ponzi scheme going, like a multi multi billion dollar Ponzi scheme, and he he just got caught. Like it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, and he scammed famous people, famous actors, even the New York Mets of millions and millions of dollars. And so these guys, what their scam is, they 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 observed me. I was hired to do a session in North Carolina and the guy that had created a fake record label, but I didn't know that, uh, you know, I'm making recording drum tracks and he's observing me. I just thought he was starstruck or something. And then we go out to dinner. He's 
you know, 10 of us to like Morton's and he's paying in cash and he's in a Hummer, a a tricked out Hummer. Next day he comes in with another tricked out car. Next day is a motorcycle that's like, you know, a hundred thousand dollar Harley or something with tricked out with all this extra stuff. But this was part of the scam. What did they do is they showboat and then, you know, I get picked up by a limo car and then, then they... Very nice guy, you know, he starts start talking about his dad and, and what his dad does is, oh, yeah, you know, we've made millions. He works for the U.N. and, you know, makes great these products. Uh, when they um, we go into like when the U.N. decides they're going to do a drop lift uh, food to like Somalia or other places, my dad's involved. He's a he's on the team and they get like really healthy milk and rice and all this stuff to these people. Like, oh, that's cool, man. Didn't think anything of it, you know, and we, they had me come back again to do more recording and we got to dinner and, and just wined and dined. And, right. and then um, at one point they overheard me struggling with getting from Switzerland to Chicago to Nashville to re- rehearse for Willie Nelson's 70th birthday. That's going to be filmed on TV in New York. Now, I was originally going to be able to do it Switzerland and New York City, but they decided to rehearse in Nashville. Couldn't do it. So he... He got a jet for me. He got my own. He got me my own jet from Chicago. When I landed in Chicago, a, a pilot met me, took me from the uh, right when I got off the plane to his jet, and they flew me to Nashville. I made the rehearsal, wow. and so I mean it was very believable. And so there was an opportunity to invest in this uh, a, ver- uh, a milk product uh, that was going to be was going to have an IPO eventually. But I got in on the early. Uh, get in on the stock at an early at the beginning and it and it was you know i'd ask people this is not un, unheard of and um the, the process was pretty cool Sh- shares of stock were issued to me and all this stuff and uh it was totally a scam there was never going to be a product um the thing that also made me invest is the dad was on on good good morning america or good or, or no uh What's the one that the the, the, the Today, Today Show? Show? Yeah, with uh, Matt Lauer. I think yeah. Today Show. And then he was. They were also in the USA Today. He had a doctor with him. I don't know if that was in documentary. The old man was the was the kingpin on this. He he had he had already been. He knew all the laws. He'd already been nailed by the FC, the FCC or whatever is whatever. SEC. Yeah, and and he but he got spanked, but he never got put in jail. The guy was ruthless. He literally was pathological he didn't the day that he got put in jail which i had him put in prison and he died there the guy was yelling at the judge for like you thinking that he was being ripped off and being mistreated after people had hung themselves they stole money from old people taking their insurance policies and it was only 150,000, but this was these people's retirements. Right. And when they found out they were scammed, a couple of these guys shot themselves, hung themselves. And this guy thought he was being screwed with. And he's yelling at the judges. They're taking him away in handcuffs. Jeez. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how did, how did you get hooked up with him in the first place? Like I said, I was doing a recording session, and he was there. You were, were you, he was just there. I, that, I was trying was to figure there. out if, you, he, was, if he, he was there or if they hired you for the session. He didn't hire me. Another guy hired me, ah. and he was the record label, and the record label was fake. 
It was another scam. They had hired. They were trying to get in the music business and get public. Get they 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 were getting. They had a guy that they were getting a two million dollar publishing deal. Supposedly, they got. He was a song, a legitimate songwriter in Nashville, and he um, was the scammers. The De Bruno's used this guy as a songwriter to get investors to invest two million dollars in this songwriter with the with the possibility of when his songs uh get make money they'll make money or they'll sell the publishing right. of his songs to somebody to make money and then and, and it seemed very believable because this guy had made albums he was a good songwriter a great singer it was real man and they invested and so that's how they got the money to create the label and build offices. And then they just keep rolling this money over and they spend it. It's insane. They spend it or bury it. But so the FBI, I got involved with the FBI and I took the FBI guys. Said, I said, I said, dude, I mean, I even had a private eye watching them. And um, the FBI, I said, why, why can't you put these guys away? And he is what he said. Kenny, dude, he was, a, he was a cool guy. He says, Man, I feel for you. You have been screwed. There is no question. You've been screwed. But I'm dealing with murder and terrorists. Now, yeah. your scams are at the bottom of the pile of my stuff. He says, that's the bottom line. Hmm. Like, wow. And the only reason why the FBI got involved was somebody one day from the news got wind of this whole thing and made a story out of it. And now it became a big story in Charlotte. And now it was starting to draw attention. The FBI had to be involved. They got involved and they prosecuted the crap out of these guys. Put the kid in prison when I sued Bank of America because the Bank of America messed up because the investments I made to a corporation got put into another corporate uh, account. And they were supposed to, by their Tom code, notify me or my bank that this was happening and they never did. So I was right, but you don't sue Bank of America. That was my point in the book. Never, <laughs> never sue a big bank because they're going to win. And yeah. even if you win, they're going to countersue you, and then they win. Then you countersue them, then you win. Then they count, and then right. you know, they got more money. And it, it reminds me of uh, in the Gotti movie, the the John Gotti movie. He's talking about the feds, but you could make this about the bank too. He's like, they don't run out of time or money. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, so it, it was, you know, that's why the chapter's called I Let It Go. I had to let it go. I mean, he, the jury, the jury on that trial, I ran into half of them after the judge dismissed the trial and ran, and they were like, they felt so horrible. Everybody from like a school teacher to a millionaire woman in furs and jewels said, we were going to give you your money back. I, they were saying we would have done the same investment. Made sense. It was like, why right. wouldn't you? They said it was a great investment. And then, you know, when I was on the trial, on the on the jury stand, when I was on the stand, witness stand, and these four guys from Bank of America in suits and jackets, it's like right out of a movie, looking real pompous and cocky. And this is what I learned. So if any of you are listening, you're on trial. There's three answers. One, no. Two, yes. Three, not to my recollection. Now, not to my recollection is the big one, because if you don't know the answer 100%, you say no or not to my recollection. Right. If you know the answer only 90%, you say not to my recollection. And that's when these guys would look at me and smile and go, it's not to your recollection. 
And then they let me rephrase that, Mr. Aronoff. Say it another way. Not to my recollection. And they'd still drill me, and I'd look at my lawyer, and he'd be like smiling at me. That's right. You say, I do not recall. <laughs> I do not recall, not to my recollection. Listen, the first witness when I was on trial with Bank of America was the guy, the son that scammed me, and he was in chains, ankles and hands. And he was in a jumpsuit, and he had to walk right by me. And I was saying, I kept saying, look at me, motherfucker. Look at me. Look at me. And all I heard was ching, 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 ching. And him walking barefoot through there, just ching, ching, you know, the chains. It was unbelievable. It was surreal. And he took the fifth on everything. Yeah. Everything my my uh, lawyer asked him, he took the fifth. I'm sure. You know, it's it not that it makes you feel any better, but like, you know, that person has to live with themselves every day, you know? Well, he's in prison for 20 years. I mean, yeah. he... You know. But even when he gets out, he's still, he, you know, you got to live with, he has to live with that for the rest of his life. No. Well, well, you know, a pathical, pathological person doesn't is, care about. Yeah. That's a psychopath, right? Yeah. Psychopath. Anything where it's just, it's, they're, they're not connected. The wires aren't connected. Yep. So um, hopefully he will have found God or something and realize he really messed up. And when he gets out, he's okay. But you know, I don't know. <laughs> All right, one more story out of the book. So, what's tell tell one of the stories out of there? What's one of your favorites in there? <laughs> the story that didn't go in the book. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's the story. Let's tell that one. Yeah. There's a Cameron Cameron Diaz story. I talked I talked to told people about where it's a long story. It was um, the bottom line is she ended up. I was working with a Tony Iommi and Billy Corgan from the Pumpkins on a Tony Iommi record. It was late at night. I was I had just been on tour for eight months with the Pumpkins. I was in L.A. making a record with Tony. I just recorded for 13 hours. I was exhausted. And uh, the, the long, shorter version of the story is Cameron Diaz ends up on my lap. She was just made her first big uh, movie about Mary or something. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and she heard me say something to somebody and she sat on my lap and put her arms around me and was really, really sweet and said something like, whispered in my ear and said, you know, I heard what you said. That was really cool. And she was really, really amazingly beautiful, sexy. And and my typical move at that point would be to try to, you know, get her to my hotel room, you know, which was right upstairs, right there. Right. And that would be my typical, you know, put up, you know, do my thing, do my <laughs> Which any, to my hustle, the anybody, art of hustle. <laughs> yeah, any guy. When I, I was good at it, I was a I was a professional. So anyway, the thing is, and I and they the people at Hal Leonard said nah, or my editor said nah. It just seems like you're name dropping. But what I I wish I'd put it in because the point that I wanted to make really was I didn't even go down that road because I realized I had to record the next day. At, at you know early and had a 13 hour day and this is Tony Iommi Billy Corgan I was not going to jeopardize my career or my session for that you know? really yeah that is literally I mean I have done I had done it before and made mistakes and had regrets but this was a real heavy record and I knew at this point in my career I wasn't making mistakes like that so. I literally, the point of it, and the, the book is about a workaholic and how my career always came first. And that was a, that would have been a great story in the book to say just that, 
to right. turn down the gorgeous, sexy, hot Cameron Diaz. Not that she would have gone with me. She probably would have dumped me. But I, I was going to ask if you think, like, did you have a chance? What do you think? Uh, oh, no, I think I had a chance. Yeah. I, I, there's things that could have made it happen. But the thing <laughs> is, uh, I mean, she's, I mean, she didn't go home with anybody. That's the whole point. Right. You know, so I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know. She might, she's standing here right next to me. She might slap me and say, are you fucking kidding me? I wouldn't have gone home with you, you bald headed idiot. But <laughs> but maybe she would have. <laughs> Who knows? The point is, I didn't even try. I mean, I would right. normally have tried, you know, and, and, and I didn't. I, I just went, I made a conscious decision. Dude, no, do not do this. Dude, get to your room. And get ready for the session tomorrow. Right, and you know it's, I, it's a it's a great story, but it all like you said, it speaks to the character of saying, okay, listen, you know, there's, I think that's what separates the the sort of kind of successful and the greats. It's like you know when you the the CEO of the of the company isn't out till you know four o'clock in the morning partying because he's like i gotta get up in the morning because i got important yeah. things to do like the business owner or whoever it is yeah. or the or the guy who has to do the session in the morning or yeah. you know knows that there's some some important stuff going on yeah. or the person that's really serious about their studies in college or whatever the case yeah. may be um it's it's sort of the it's the you can either have the short-term gratification or the long-term gratification which is really what you want is that long the long term the thing that you're working for that the the pie in the sky north star kind of kind of thing and uh i i think that you definitely you definitely personify that 100 percent. yeah well that's cool man i'm glad you look see it that way i'm a uh, workaholic too so i get it yeah 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 i mean you know but in a good way like i love it i i I like taking a red eye and having a meeting at eight o'clock in the morning. You know, like I love, I love the hustle and I love, I love just that. I love always going. My wife's the complete opposite. She's like, I don't know how you do it. I'm like, I, I just, I like it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'd, I'd much rather work than do anything else. So yeah. Yeah. It's, that's know. a great way to be. Yeah. You know. So do you, uh, I want to be cognizant of your time, but I want to ask, um, do you, so do you teach privately or do you just do master? I mean, you're so busy. I'm guessing that you don't. I, I don't teach that often and the lessons are expensive and some of it is because my time is so valuable. I mean, I'm like, I barely can even do these podcasts because I mean, I'm sitting here like, whoa, I got so much on my plate. Right. Um, but so yeah, I do teach people, you know, and I always tell people because I've heard people, you know, say, oh man. Too expensive. Uh, here's what I say to people. I, you know, <laughs> every minute of the day is valuable to me. If you're going to come and take a lesson with me and spend the, the money to take a lesson with me, write down questions so that you get the most value out of my lesson. Every mm -hmm. second. Like, this, don't treat it like a casual thing. So you get the most out of it. Right. So you can walk away with six months worth of stuff to practice mm -hmm. or knowledge about the business or about life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that simple. Yeah. So last question, if you could say, if you could tell your younger self something, what would it be? Uh, you mean like advice? Yeah. Or anything. Um, <laughs> brush your teeth. <laughs> no, I would tell my younger self that, um, everything's going to be good, man. Everything's going to be good. Everything always ends up being good. Everything is good. The glass is always full. Don't get hung up on the glass is empty or woe is me. Every time we feel like that, everything always gets sorted out 
we're, we're, you and me are a team. We're tight. And I look after you. You look after me. Eventually, we get what we want done. It may take longer than usual. Don't get anxious. Don't get freaked out. You're Just work hard and do the best you can. Wise words. Kenny, yeah. thank you so much for, for taking awesome. the time to chat. And everybody thank listening, go out and get Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll. And uh, it's, I mean, it's a really, it's a great book. The, the foreword was written by Neil Peart. And there's a lot of just super interesting stories and pictures and all kinds. Of, it's a it's a great book. And thank you again for sending it my way. And uh, I, I do appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate you having, you know, taking the time to be on the podcast as well, man. It's great to chat with you. Awesome, Nick. Great job. Great questions. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll see you down the road. Absolutely. I am. Uh, I'm in California a lot. So. Oh, and I'm actually going to New York to do something with Billy Gibbons December 16th, playing for the um, the uh, veterans. Oh, yeah. are you? And then I'm doing serious radio on Monday the 19th. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, that's the that's as much as I'll be in New York right now. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see you while you're here, but I know that you're yeah probably, in and out or super busy yeah. and yeah. All right, man. Take care, man. Kenny, you do the same. Thank you again. I really do appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Kenny Arnoff, ladies and gentlemen. That guy has stories upon stories upon stories, and they're all amazing. And we were talking before and after the podcast. I mean, there was some that were left out of the book. There's like, I mean, the guy has so many stories. And I encourage you to pick up this book. This is, as I mentioned in the article, or in the in the article, in the podcast, that each story in the book you can read individually so it's not like this long book it's just these little excerpts from his life and it's it's really a fascinating book it's it's hard to put down check it out it's called sex drums rock and roll and you can get that amazon all that stuff and i'll link up to it in the show notes at drummersresource.com forward slash session two three zero and again, if you get value out of these podcasts, if you love these podcasts, if you want to help the podcast grow and uh, want to donate some money, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash support. And contributions literally start at $1 a month and every little bit counts. So if you can swing $1, I encourage you to please do it. But also, if you get a lot of value out of these podcasts, I ask that you consider contributing a little bit more, maybe 5 10 20 bucks a month. Whatever you can squeeze, I do appreciate it. And you'll know that you're helping the podcast grow and you're helping educate drummers all around the world who are listening to this podcast for free. So keep that in mind, drummersresource.com forward slash support. I would greatly appreciate it. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I love you all and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.